0: Coming through. Welcome to the Educate US Podcast. With your host, Nick Severi, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators, talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. As always, thank you of course for listening to the Educate US Podcast. Emails are always welcome at TheEducateUSShow at gmail.com. We are available, obviously, across all podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, you name it. If you are are listening to us via Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews are always appreciated. On Spotify, you can now leave a comment as well. We are excited to always read that, hear from it. Again, we have plenty of people through LinkedIn, our own personal friendships that reach out to us and say that they really appreciate what we're doing. Awesome. Make sure your word, Make sure your view is also heard across these rating systems, which always really help and mean a lot to the show. So today we're going to be a little shorthanded. You know, one third of us today will not be joining us. Our colleague Stacy, um, and you know, we obviously keep her in our mind as we as we talk today. But yeah, you know, Patrice and I come to today with an interesting conversation that we started to tease out or started to dive into before I hit record, and it's this idea that. It comes back to a question that, or I always bring this up when I talk about the show, both here, but then also with with friends. It's this profound concept of the role of school as an idea. And you know, when we started this show, I always appreciate that Patrice put forward because at the time we all sort of thought about what are the given facts? Like, what are the realities that we know of about education in the United States? and Patrice's contribution there, one of them was the idea that, School in the U.S. is a is a is considered perfunctory and you always laugh because it's like, well, that, you know, that's a it's a sobering word, but it's a reality, too. And it's a really exciting promise that we could be offering to our young people. So one of the things we like to do on this show often is, you know, we're always trading articles with one another, you know, Stacey, Patrice and I. And one came up recently. That I originally actually heard from a friend of mine who hopefully may come on this show at some point, who is a school board member in Connecticut. And she posted this article, you know, from the New Yorker. And then as, as uh, Patrice and Stacy and I were talking, Stacey had forwarded that to us, unbeknownst to her that I'd already seen it. And it play, it connects to, on on a certain level, this idea of the role of school. So Patrice and I were looking at a couple of different articles and we said, you know, which one do we want to, you know, dive into? So we're going to jump into that a little bit today, but I'm excited to share with the jump that, you know, before we got, before we started today's episode, you know, Patrice was sharing about some really exciting work that she's doing, you know, and something that we want to make sure that we always do on this show is when we're out in the field and we're doing the incredible work that we do as educators, it's important to bring that here for the simple fact that we want to make sure we always bring field experience back. What in real time are we seeing when we're engaging with educational communities? You know, for for, for example, tomorrow, I'm actually going to be on the road working with a group of school leaders up in up in Westchester. And I'm excited about just jumping back into an audience, um, you know, getting into some you know areas of instructional practice. But, you know, that's tomorrow for me. I'm coming out of that experience. I'm excited to bring that back to the show. But Patrice, I know you're coming fresh out of that experience. You are also in the great borough of Brooklyn, New York. Your your you stomping grounds first i gotta ask whenever you come back to brooklyn you know obviously you know family you know being there but where are the where are the places that you go is there a particular place you go for a certain cup of coffee a cup of tea food like obviously new york always presents itself many parts of new york as having individual spots that we always like sort of love to go check out um But what's the spots that Patrice, when you're coming off the air, when you're getting off the airplane that you're already thinking of, you know, in the time I'm going to be back in the borough where I got to hit spot X, Y or Z. What are some of those for you?
1: That is such a great question, Nick, because I was just telling um, my my homegirl, who's also a Brooklynite, um, that I I did this. So one of our spots is Best Buy Fish Fry. This is our spot like we go for our catfish mac and cheese, your collard greens, cabbage, rice and peas, you know, just your down-home meal. So I literally, uh, before our plane took off, I opened up my Uber Eats and ordered the food to my parents' house (laughs) so that it could be here waiting for us upon our arrival. So your question is like super timely in that regard. Um, I also, for my sweet tooth, there's a spot on Vanderbilt Avenue called a little cupcake shop. Um, and they have this amazing cupcake that basically tastes like the strawberry shortcake good humor bar so it like takes me back to times when I was you know outside playing the ice cream truck comes and I would get that strawberry shortcake um, bar so uh, shout out to that bakery shop and there's this other spot called dough that makes these amazing donuts. Um that I like to frequent as well. So yeah, those are a few of my spots. I love that question because this is how I stay connected to to Brooklyn because it's just ever changing in a way that's kind of sad. So connecting with those spots, you know, brings me joy.
0: See, I'm gonna take the bait there because I know <laughs> it's, pass, it's passe at this point to say, well, you know, City X is changing. You know, we have seen so many cultural centers, what we often call cities, right? Where through gentrification and a variety of other reasons, the energy feels different. The vibe is different. Now, obviously, over time, businesses will come and go, um, living spaces may change, but sometimes there are intentional forces that can create that. So, when you talk about the borough changing, not just in your most recent visit, but over time when you've been coming back up, because obviously you're you're down in in the south now in Georgia, what are some of those changes that you see in in the in the borough that's been home to you?
1: Oh my gosh, there's so many. And again, another timely like question is literally I was driving and looking down a block that was this. It's the same block where I went to elementary school. And I'm driving down the block and I just see a building and I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> I was just here. Um, and so it's it's a lot of that, it's a lot of just like fixtures that. It's almost like, so this particular building I'm speaking of now is sort of remodeled. It wasn't like brand new, but it wasn't a a building that they kind of took and just like did something kind of cool and funky with, honestly. But it was just like stark to me because I'd never seen it. And I literally drove down that block when I was last here. And I was last here almost like a month ago. Um, So it's just like these things are going up and you sort of miss them in a way. And then you come back and then it's like, well, where did that come from? And then just you know, driving down blocks, which used to be like, you know, Brooklyn's known for its tree lined blocks with brownstones. Um, and then you see these new buildings going up, which don't have the same sort of architecture as the brownstone. So it just, you know, and the buildings are nice, they're nice and modern, and they look good ish, but they just don't match, they don't fit. And I'm just like, you know, there's so much architectural genius out there, I'm sure they couldn't have thought of a way to build a modern version of a brownstone that matches the the vibe of the neighborhood and you know, kind of keeps that preserved in a way though, moving the architecture forward in, in certain um, sense with a certain sense of moder- modernity, um, it's just astounding for me. And so it almost feels like something is being ripped away um, because the thing that used to bring you comfort, the blocks that you frequented, the things that like are almost in your bone memory are like just not there anymore. Um, You go in the store, I'm like astounded by the prices and like certain levels of produce, organic things, which, you know, I'm a fan of, um, but I know that they're not, they weren't put there in those stores for the people who have historically lived in those neighborhoods. So those are the things that kind of like, uh, yeah, they make it kind of sad to return home, but also deepens me in terms of the work that I want to do here in Brooklyn, even though I don't live here anymore.
0: I appreciate the segue right there, when you mentioned work. So yeah. I know you're coming off a recent experience working with educators or a, um, a, a community based organization there. Um, for as much as you can, share a little bit about the work that's going on that you've been recently doing. Uh, what excites you about it? And what are your hopes for what that work will do um, for the community that you've served recently?
1: Yeah, so I won't name names that I didn't get permission to do so, though I wish I had. And actually, as I think about it, Nick, the CEO, uh, head of this organization, might be a good person to bring on our show. Um, But it's a cultural institution. Um, I'll just leave it there. Uh, And basically did uh, DEI work with them. So for our listeners who may not be privy to the alphabet soup of our world, that is diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Um, So getting them to look at how DEI lives in their organization and in the work that they do in the community. And I think it's important for them because unlike a lot of the other organizations I work with, their institution is directly in the community that they serve. Um, and you know the, it's a cultural institution, so it's here for all of New York City and, and certainly for all of Brooklyn. But there's something really niche about um, the area that they're in and um, serving that particular population. So um, yeah, it's exciting for me because I could see light bulbs going off, and I you know I'm a teacher at heart, so whenever you see light bulbs, it's it's an exciting thing, and just getting folks to take space to reflect on things that they don't ordinarily get the time to reflect on. And also to do that in a shared space where they get to learn from and learn about the people that they work with on a daily basis. So you get to see people in a different light. And, you know, again, we always talk on our show about humanizing our efforts and humanizing the things that we do. And so taking this time to reflect in a collective space helps you to see your colleague in a different light, helps you to connect with them in a different way and then therefore impacts the work in a different way. So I'm excited about being able to see hopefully some shifts happen within their work dynamic. Um, you know, in my work um, at the Ella Baker Institute, the organization that I co-founded, um, we're, we're intent on supporting community well-being and organizational well-being. So this component of our work is really centered on that organizational well-being. So that's the part that I'm um, I'm really leaning on. So yeah, it's diversity, equity, inclusion, sure. But for us, it's really about well-being and getting folks to be grounded in that in the work that they do, because they you know, the work they're doing matters. And hopefully the people they're working with matter as well. And, you know, it's important to get those people on the same page in order to advance the work and to impact the communities that they they, that that they serve.
0: Now you've caught you've you've I'm going to take the bait again. As you just talked about DEI, I saw an article recently, I think in the state of uh, Florida, shockingly, um, about trying to again stamp out efforts of DEI playing a role in organizational development, organizational support. So for our for our listeners, when you think of diversity, equity, and inclusion in that work, what should organizations consider in terms of the outcomes? Like, what if a program is really executed faithfully? What should be happening to you know those who are receiving that you know that learning opportunity, but to the people that they serve, the organizations that they serve. In short, can you dispel a little bit or really like meaningfully give a definition to what that work should be? Because I think often when we hear DEI, unfortunately, it's been often co opted by those who are opponents, who speak ignorantly of it, who try to downplay it and turn it into, um, Something that just doesn't feel as meaningful, but you're obviously doing the work. Unlike these people who are so critical. So, if you don't mind, just take a moment to sort of, you know, pull the microscope back a little bit on meaningfully. What should DEI offer an institution uh, if they decide to go upon that journey?
1: Yeah, it's a really, really great question. Because um, even myself, I'm I've been sort of um, taking a taking a critical eye to to DEI because I I saw it as like somewhat of a fad. You know, we had the George Floyd incident and then all of a sudden everyone cared about uh, Black people. And so that translated in organizational context to, oh, we now have to have a DEI initiative. We have to have a chief diversity officer. We have to do equity work. And, you know, it's great for those of us who were grounded in that work already because, you know, that meant that we got to expand our reach. But in the grand scheme of things, you realize that a lot of people are just doing it to put a bullet a bandaid over a bullet wound, and to you know put on a show and to check a box. But nonetheless, um, to me, what the work does if it's done meaningfully is it builds awareness. And so, like as an example, with this organization that I work with today and will continue to work with, they're majority black and brown. And so you would think, well, they don't need DEI work, right? But it's really, as I shared with them today, it, it as much as it is about race and ethnicity, it also isn't. It's really just getting to embrace the diversity of humanity, because guess what? Humans are all different, even if they share the same skin color. What do you know? Right? So it's just getting people to peel back the the layers of the onion, so to speak, around around that difference. And how do we embrace that difference, and how do we find commonality within that difference in order to create greater synergy, which can then, further our efforts together in the shared mission that we have under the umbrella of this particular organization, right? So if we all care about this organization and its mission, then it's important for us to be aligned around it. And how do we get aligned around it if we're not actually connecting as human beings? And part of that means that we have to honor the diversity of who we are. Part of that means that we need to create an environment that is inclusive of all the people who are here and inclusive of the communities that we serve if you're a community-serving organization, right? Um, You have to create a space of belonging for everyone, um, you have to consider the people who are least considered, right? That is equity, right? You have to center those who are most marginalized in order to make sure that everybody is getting what they need. You have to create access for folks who don't ordinarily have the resources and the means to get the things that they need, right? So, um, you know, there's DEI and then people who, you know, also do DEIA work, which is also what I've been doing with this, with this particular organization. So it's really about pushing forward, Um to me, or raising awareness and and creating more levels of connectivity among the people who are doing the work, because at the end of the day, it is really about the people, right? Because an organization can't exist without it. And uh, to me, the success of that organization really hinges upon um, the the awareness and connectivity that those people have.
0: It's interesting because as you were talking about the, the that work, and you spoke about access and equity as well, but the idea that... In recognizing the attempts to serve others, recognizing the people that you're serving, that you could be serving, it's a perfect segue to the conversation that comes up for us today. So, you know, the article we both read was recently from the New Yorker um, Has school become optional? You know, this article comes to us from Alec, Alec McGillis. Uh, this is actually dated from January 8th, 2024. So, from a re- recent issue of the publication. But before going into the article itself, I wanted to start a little bit at the broader level. Let's connect the dots a little bit. So this idea of school, you presented this when we first began this show, this idea that school being perfunctory, but also a a fixture in society. When you first heard the title, even before reading it, how does that connect to you when you define school, its opportunity, and really how that And how the construct has has changed really from when you were a student to you being an educator to the work that you're doing now, but just as a member of society, what what sort of started coming up for you? Because I know certainly a lot of questions came up for me before even reading the article itself, which is you know the the work of a good headline. But what did the headline sort of connect? At what level did that connect to you, uh, considering the context of you as an educator?
1: Yeah. So so the the title was very well. Personally, I found it provocative. At least it provoked thought for me, for sure. Um, and it just made me think and reflect on my own experience now as I'm homeschooling my daughter. Um, so it made me think about, well, one, which is something we've been talking about or at least teasing at, has school, I'm like, school? Well, what is school? <laughs> Become optional. And then, like, optional. Optional to whom? And in what way, right? Um, so I thought... I, I Immediately, they made me think about those sorts of things. And like the fact that i'm I'm able even able in a to be in a position where I can opt out of school as we traditionally know it and um have my mo- my my daughter receive her education at home. Um, and, you know, I heard of homeschooling and things like that previously, but um it just became more part of my reality once the pandemic hit. You know, so that was the other piece that really stuck out to me when I saw the title is like, oh, I know this is connected to the pandemic because this is kind of what put the mirror in front of our faces as we realized kids are doing school at home now because they have to. We don't have a choice, albeit maybe not so effectively everywhere, but it really turned on its head the concept of school, seeing as how we're doing it in this whole completely different way. yeah and it, it you know in in different ways and rolled out in different ways and executed in different ways um but i think it it made all of us realize like wait a second here like this whole school thing that we've been doing what's really happening here you know so that that to me i feel fir- i figured that the title was so, sort of getting at that and you know as we'll discuss shortly it it actually did um so i'm curious for you nick what what came up for you as well
0: i think the example i always come up to is the I always think of high school. So, you know, where I lived previously in Maplewood, New Jersey, um, I was about a mile from, you know, from, Col- I think it's Columbia High School, which is the high school that the townships of Maplewood and South Orange share together. And, you know, it was always interesting to me because, you know, the end of, like, middle of the day, even throughout the day, you'd have students coming in and out of the building. You know, I always thought about the fact that students of that age, you know, four years of predominantly an in-classroom learning experience, not just there, I mean, in general, right, in this country. And I would see all these able-bodied young people, and I would think to myself, when they leave the school, when they walk out, when you leave that building, you walk right into town, the local pizza shop, gas station, not that far from a daycare. And I always always think to myself that, you know, when we enter the working world professionally, we think to ourselves, like, what are the skills that, you know, we bring into this space? Because we're not robots. You know, we obviously bring our own personal context and the skills that we have and who we are as people. And I always think, and there was always this weird, I don't know if I would say it's a juxtaposition, but this interesting conflict in my head of, so the building there has young people there right next to said building are, is the real world. Or you know businesses, it's life, right? What's the connection between these two things? Because if a school building, not if, but you have the school building, you know people go through a lived experience as students. How does that lived experience connect to the very people that are right outside that building? And I always just sat with that because I always thought of, and then my brain would get to a place of, well, you know, what does service look like? You know, the opportunity to work right within the community, um, the opportunity to you know, work, I guess, as part of it in terms of like paid profession. Um, but I wasn't so much just thinking about that. I just thought more about the fact that there was so much learning that can happen outside of school. I, you, I always make this argument about faith and religion often, that if you are in a place of worship or if faith as defined to you doesn't connect itself with some form of service or community, then really what is this all about then? I mean, because there's something to be said about the spiritual, but there's something to be said about how does the world benefit from your spiritual experience? You know, how are you helping others? Do you serve others? Because that seems to be at the core of, ma- of most, you know, major religions. Anyway, so I always think of school in the same way. You know, people are coming out of this building and it's not leading into a way to contribute to the community that they are a part of in any form. Well, what are we doing here? So it always felt weird to me. So I, I bring all this up to say that when I thought of the idea of school being optional, I always think of that school because I always think of, you know, what is the experience of students? Because when we often hear, and Patrice and I hear this phrase a lot, Stacey does too, this idea of student engagement. So, you know, it's, it's, if you're playing a bingo card of what educators talk about in terms of what they hear, what their needs are, safely put a chip if you can, or make the free space student engagement because you'll never lose. And I think about that all the time that, Coming out of the pandemic, even before it, I think especially older students started to realize that, you know, well, I'm relegated to this classroom. I have a textbook, an interactive whiteboard, a regular whiteboard, maybe even a chalkboard. This experience I'm going through, and I have to produce work. I write papers. I answer questions. I sometimes give an oral presentation. I don't know. But I go outside and I see a different world in front of me. And do these two things connect with one another? Does my experience here lead me to being able to better understand that world? So when I thought of the idea of the idea of optional, I kind of wondered about, is this also an invitation to reimagine what school could be? And then as I read through the article specifically on the idea of absenteeism, which interestingly, I don't know how you felt about this, but that's not the place I went to. When I saw that question, I went to a place of, um, redesign. You know, I thought about, I don't think, it, I don't know if you were going here with you. You may have teased this out when you said optional for who I kind of was picking up on what you were putting down there. When I hear that word, I, I, I sometimes think of a form of privilege because who gets to back away from this, Right. Do you have the resources that if this experience is not for you, you're still able to be in a, in a short phrase. Okay. So you're going to be, you'll be fine. Those who are not that school is still the requirement for them. What is left for them. So I thought of this more from the standpoint of, yeah, like, can we, can we sit down for a minute and reimagine what this could be as I then read the article, And I did have the same question about absenteeism of this idea of better understanding what causes it. And I don't want to give too much away, but like my initial takeaway from the article is, you know, people are sort of pointing to the fact that an institution that plays a role in the development of their children structurally is missing something. And in and in, in, in pairing that with the context of the pandemic, there seems to be just a very glaring missing piece. If I'm looking at this as a big old puzzle, like there's clearly, clearly clearly some missing pieces. And it's like, we all know that, but there's something about the structure of school of this, of that school that is just sort of like the scar is there. And for some reason it's being examined as to what's going on, but the opportunity to really address that is not so.
1: Well, similarly, as I think I heard you saying, I I was not expecting it to go in that direction. It's just not, the title didn't make me think about absenteeism at all. And actually, similarly, as you were talking, I'm like, is this our educator lens? Probably so. Um, I, I just did not think about absenteeism as a thing at all as around optional school being optional. I really did think about, well, rethinking what school is, as that's where I thought it was going to go which it kind of hints at it in some ways, but not really. Um, you know, I, I realized, and I knew this when we were in the thick of it, and I'm like, this pandemic is gonna have such reverberating effects on two things. One, teachers, teacher burnout, and the teacher shortage that we already had, right? And it certainly did, it exacerbated that. And then two, um, student engagement, you know? Um, and what that's going to look like, but I just didn't, I did not foresee the great impact on absenteeism that it has had. Um, I thought it would have an impact, but not as much as it, as the article has has uh, demonstrated, and lots of statistics out there are showing. Um, you know, I think for me, it, it it made me realize like there's just so many issues that so many folks across our country are facing um there's a point in the article where this woman who works at this what sounds like a great organization it's like sort of combating this absenteeism issue you know there's parents who are like you know i'm going through issues i can't get my kid to school and you know there's a purveying thought that's like well that's not their fault you gotta figure it out um and i get that um but also what's gonna happen with those issues you know those are very real again human issues that a parent goes through that impacts their ability to 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 do the best by their, their their child. And you know, again, I even say that, but like what's best? I don't know, is that even for anyone to decide but those parents, right? Maybe what's best is to keep the child with them for whatever various reasons, who knows. Um but yeah, I I, I think a lot about the challenges that come with running a school. <laughs> and you you just can't you can't ignore or wish away, or even throw money at uh, a lot of these challenges because they're deep, um, they're pervasive, they're long-standing, um, and they're very human. So I appreciated the articles surfacing work that sounds, at least, at least it reads that way that it's meaningful work and it's done by, led by someone who's really thoughtful and has been impacted by this very challenge. Um, and oftentimes, those are the very those are the best people to lead that sort of work to people who are most proximate to those challenges um so I was I was happy to see that um but you know I, I don't I don't like the idea that you know and I'm sure you hear this a lot in the schools um that you know, you're partnering with but this idea of like learning loss and so it made me think about that the term drives me nuts it's like what does that mean what does that mean um, but you know just like education. And it just always, once there's a term, everyone just kind of like eats it up. Um, So the the article definitely made me think about that, but it just also made me think like, why aren't we just being, why don't we take this as our cue to be more creative? I just don't get it. I thought, I mean, I do get it. I do get it. I shouldn't say I don't get it. I do. But I just feel like there's just so much that we could be doing that we're not. Um, And we could be, this, this could be our very invitation to just, Think outside of the box, be more creative, you know, think about ways that we can make student experiences more hybrid, more real world, more inviting. Um, and I, I just don't know that we're really doing that in the way that we we probably should be and can be. Um, and that's the sobering part of it.
0: You know, I'm going to, two things came to mind as you were just talking about that. One is similar to you, my, why I get uncomfortable with the idea of learning loss, which I'll get to in a second. Let me actually, yeah, I'll get to that in a second, because I do actually, as you just talked about school, the reality of the fact that you thought, like many, that the pandemic, remote learning, this change need may the may be the beginnings of a sea change, right? I want to do a thought experiment with you for a moment. I want to think about for a second that in the pandemic, we did see some organizations, some businesses, some other entities, right? Change their practices to embrace what was going on and came out of it, not necessarily returning entirely back to what they were before the pandemic. Can you think of an example of that? And I'm just want to, because I'm, I'm kind of sort of sitting with the fact of was the idea of school quote unquote, sort of like the exception to the rule here where we saw a lot of agility in different spaces socially or am i wrong or did some places remain somewhat static in you know in a post pandemic world but like when you think of the pandemic and you think of the different places you have gone the different organizations you experienced um where did you see change and in in those cases what changes sort of have seen uh, like basically continue to like basically you know, became a part of the fabric of that organization and, you know, they've, they've come out of it forever changed from the pandemic.
1: That's a super good question. And, you know, again, what's sobering is I'm thinking like running through my mind and honestly, most of the organizations. So the whole idea of like remote work and it's like increasing as time goes on. But most of the organizations that I saw embrace that after the pandemic were already either remote or end or hybrid before the pandemic, I think of a certain institution, which I'll remain lame- nameless, but it's a very large institution in New York City. Um, and folks that I know, I used to work there, and I know folks that work there now, um, they went right back. And this is another education-based organization. They were hybrid or at least remote during the pandemic and then went right back. Um, but then you do have some instances where I think maybe um, more... Classes may be offered remotely now, as opposed to before. Um, some organizations, you know, embrace the hybrid uh, format for their their staff. Um, but honestly, as I think about most folks or most organizations I've come in contact with, not much of them really embraced a whole lot of change as a result.
0: So my experiment may be faulty in that, like schools, representative of what many other organizations did like i was sitting with it's funny i mean it's very narrow but i did think about like restaurants for example places that you know changed the way they were engaging with customers um you know having alternative seating outside right and some of which kept kept the same so much so that sometimes like the streets themselves still become accessible because they've just kept that you know outside piece there it's a sm- it's a small example but it is, it is fascinating. I mean, I've certainly seen organizations like you're talking about where, you know, there's been sort of a, the rubber band snaps back weirdly, but that means that, that like what sort of makes up said rubber band is so like entwined in it that it could never change. So it's going to, it's going to return. It has to. And the idea of like returning back to offices, right. And there's still opportunity. I mean, we're still seeing more organizations that are kind of questioning that, but. But yeah, school had this, had this interesting idea, at least the mentality I've also encountered too, is this idea that, well, now we're back in the building and then, um, think established practices that had worked previously, which in some ways I think are things that we sort of called into question are what people start to heavily rely on, um, or really return really staunchly back to. And that is the one that does feel a little odd. Um, and what it had me thinking of is like this reality of like absenteeism and the causes of it. I mean, a lot of examples were brought up in the article, you know, from terms of like work, you know, workforce situations for parents, um, just access, you know, for students. Some of these situations may change, but in general, there is a reality here. For one reason or another, students will occasionally miss school. Perfect example. Let's. For many educators that listen to this show, what I'm about to describe to you is not a foreign concept. If you work in a school where your, your school receives Title I funding, it's, it's funds to go to student support services, right? Students who meet that need, oftentimes, those students will receive additional support, many in the form of what we refer to as a pullout. Those students are individually leaving class for a little bit of time. Many, many times educators who lose their students during that time feel stifled and challenged because what often comes up is, well, when these students leave, like, how do I continue my instruction? Like I always have to play catch up. And when I hear that, what the the thing I hear in my head is, well, if this is an ongoing reality, now, again, the students of this given year who are leaving for title one service, they may cycle out next year. But if you're always noticing that sometimes you're having a portion of your student population going to a different space for a part of their learning during the day. Isn't it sort of incumbent upon you to recognize that? How do I make my, my instruction more accessible so that in the event that the student misses something, they are still able to access the same learning experience? This is not to say this is easy. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, Where is the opportunity for agility there? And as I say this, this is, I mean, I will also stress the fact that this is a structural thing I'm talking about. This is not about individual classrooms. As a leader of a school building, if you see this, what can be done to provide opportunities for those teachers to be able to re-examine the way that instructions provide so that those students who are missing instruction. Now, I just use Title I as an example. We could talk about students who have missed a lot of instruction for personal reasons, as of which were mentioned in the article. I remember a time at a charter school actually where a student I think was either at a hospital for an extended stay. And I think the school looked into like a robot or something that had linked up to a, um, like an iPad or something for a live stream. And the student was able to access instruction from their hospital bed, like the school looked into it. And I always think of that as the example of a school that really zeroed in on a particular students' need. And hopefully, I don't know if they ever thought about this beyond the fact, but recognize that what you just did could be extended to people in other situations, but this may work, which by the way, at least for me is the idea of access. It's, I think oftentimes it's mistaken as, well, we're trying to make the exception for something. Let's not really, you're basically like neurologically speaking, developing a new pathway, but then you realize that if I do it For this particular person, this particular population, this actually benefits other people. So now I've just made it more accessible, right? And Patrice is shaking her head. She's like, Yeah, he's, you know, (laughs) he's picking up on that idea, but which is, which is a very empowering thought because it's not, um, and I think sometimes there's a, um, Stacy talks about this a lot, and as, as you do too, about the idea that oftentimes that's confronted with scarcity mentality, which is why people are hesitant. Um, because if we do this, Someone's quote unquote losing. So, in in terms of takeaways from the article, like as you left it, right? Um, did any like did anything get redefined for you? Was there anything, any perspectives, or something that sort of like went off as like a light bulb in your head from um, after having ever read the article?
1: I wouldn't say light bulb per se, but it just uh, it reconnected me to the notion of. Um, what I was sharing with you before we hit record, which is that we just need to ask more questions. We have to have be more curious in this field. Um, we got to be willing to ask questions before we make judgments um, and then turn judgments into policies and laws and things like that. Um, so the whole concept of like truancy, and I appreciated the historical context the article provided, but the concept of truancy and criminalizing parents for Not sending kids to school and just like picking kids up and creating this whole juvenile delinquency, quote unquote delinquency thing around it um, is really insane, but also aligned with the values of the country. So it makes sense. Um, So but um, I think if if we can just pause and ask more questions, I think one of the things that stood out for me was something that came up in my own experience in the classroom. One of the reasons why uh, a student was experiencing chronic, experiencing chronic absenteeism was simply because algebra was the first period class and they didn't like algebra. <laughs> they were fearful around algebra. And I think of like how many students have math phobias. Right, so it just, it just begs the question, like why aren't we asking more questions? Why aren't we digging in? Why aren't we asking why more? So if we ask more questions, it could just be as simple as let's change the student's schedule. And maybe that might change his trajectory uh, or at least his willingness to come to school. Um, It also made me think about the after school space and the work that we do at the Ella Baker Institute. I saw something recently um, that a grant maker was producing a conversation around how the after school space can influence absenteeism. Sometimes it's just about creating a why for the students. Why do I want to go to school if there's not, I don't feel like there's anything there for me? And sometimes, um, if you provide an enriching experience in the after-school space, that can be a student's why. Um, I thought similarly about sports. Um, for me, it was track and dance. That was my why for a big, big portion of my school career. Um, so yeah, I, just, I would love for us to ask more questions and be more curious. And that curiosity can lead to more creativity in solving some of those challenges that are so pervasive.
0: Similar to you, no light bulbs for me. I think I, I always appreciate stories. Um, understand like the impact of a labor strike. Um, you know, your point about like school schedules, I'm reminded actually, I don't know what high school did this, but data had come back not too long ago of, you know, high school students, teenagers, you know, usually require a little more sleep. And what was happening is that when you continued the school day at the same starting time of, of around like 8.15, 8.20, you were still having students that just were not at the appropriate le- level of energy. Right. So some schools took the idea of saying, well, let's just start school later. Now, there's this idea of reacting to a need within your community, which is powerful, which is showing that school, in some cases, can be an agile entity. Of course, then there's always the pushback of, well, you know, my day, we, you know, uphills both ways in the snow, right? That kind of thing. And it's like ignoring science. It's ignoring what we're learning from data. And I think one thing I did notice in the article is it's very, in some cases, it can sometimes be anecdotal where it would tell us like the the data from something. Here we go. Absenteeism, this is from the article, absenteeism underlies much of what has beset young people in recent years, including falling school achievement, deteriorating mental health, exacerbated by social isolation, and elevated youth violence and car thefts, some occurring during school hours. Um, that's bold. I, I, had this, I had this reaction <laughs> of like, so uh, my brain is just weird sometimes. Okay, so you're saying this X causes these things. And Patrice may be the same way as I am, but at least in the education space, we always try to be careful of like being very mindful of causality and saying, if you're going to say this is causing this, then can we at least put more pieces together? Now, again, it's the New Yorker. This is not a journal. It's not a scientific journal. I get it. But that's the kind of thing that sort of stood out to me of like, so, okay, so we're having this somewhat narrative anecdotal, we are reporting done. That's supposed to speak to a larger trend, but I'm not seeing enough data to tell me that's the case. So perfect example, University of Houston had done some studies on um, you know, the percentage of teachers after the first couple of years that would leave the field. And it was a stark, it was a stark number of like, this was a, an ongoing trend, less and less people would remain in the field after a certain number of years. And it was interesting because as you dug into the data, it kind of got into like, interview questions, what's going on. And like, you sort of walked away from it saying, okay, that study, I kind of understand what's going on here. I don't feel like this is the examples of a couple of people who are trying to broaden this out to a larger conversation. Because when I think of that, I think of someone like Malcolm Gladwell, who I think there was a time where this sort of anecdotal like discovery type of thing worked really well. But then I think over time, there was so much information that would come back and say, well, if we actually did a study and here's what we found. And sometimes it wouldn't necessarily be the same thing. And I think what used to work in like cocktail parties of like, oh, hey, have you read what Malcolm wrote about this? Now it's being contrasted with, well, like there were actually people that were studying this and here's what they found. So whenever I'm reading something, you know, in the education space, like that's where my sort of trigger comes from of like, I want to be careful where we're broadening this out, because we're talking about the community, which is to say the school should be rethinking what's going on. And if you're leaving it with the idea of what could be similar in the way, Patricia, you were sort of sitting with, I'm good with that. But when I read something like that, I get a little nervous because I feel like oftentimes we start to draw our attention to a, you know, we start to limit our scope to certain communities, to certain types of schools, to certain people. And then, therefore, we start to make assertions of, well, you know, and and it starts to get into matters of race and and, social economics, and then it becomes very limiting, whereas just some scholarly research could tell us, like, what is actually happening? I don't know. Am I am I like overthinking this or? Well, like, not at all,
1: not at all. This is the thing that was those types of sentences and uh, statements in the article and just in general were a, a, a bit alarming. And just thinking about, you know, scores of people that read that those publications, it's like, it it produces this narrative, basically, and like, you can't, I mean, again, like you said, it's not a scientific journal, but you have to be careful with causality, right? So, yeah, no, I'm I'm totally, totally with you. Um, And it just makes me wonder, like, how do we, how do we push the envelope where these things are concerned? at least in our little spheres, if not little, but our spheres of influence, right? How do we get the folks that we are working with at the very least to think above and beyond those sort of like narrow and limiting um, and faulty causal lines, you know?
0: Yeah, I think ideally, I mean, if the article is not going to do it, like there, the ability to pair like what is said here with what we're actually learning, um, I think maybe the opportunity. So all that aside, though, folks, I think you know. I think it's 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 helpful to do a deep dive into a particular cause and a a potential and a, not a potential a disconnect between a school and the community it serves. And I think if you're taking anything from this article away, it's really that. So that article will, of course, be linked to the this episode in the episode in the episode description. And what Patrice and I are inviting you to do is let that be the beginning, not the end of what you're engaging with and learning. And again, ask questions to us, continue to search online. Um, you know, We love to hear that level of engagement, but similar to, I think the way Patrice was sort of getting at it is like, this was a spark for us. It wasn't a conclusion to be drawn. It was sort of like, oh, that's something to consider too. Uh, on behalf of my colleague, Dr. Patrice Fenn, I'm of course Nick Saveri. Um, and I will also say on behalf of our colleague, Dr. Stacy Schultz, uh, we're thinking about you, Stacy. We're you know, we're just wishing you and your family the best right now. Uh, and we're looking forward for the three of us to come back and and continue the talk shop of this uh, this thing we call school. Thank you for listening.